Presbyterian Church, and that is a prayer of intercession, a common prayer throughout the Reformation period that offered up prayers for the world around us, prayers for those who are lost, prayers for the gospel to go forward throughout the ends of the earth, prayers for our own people that they might grow in likeness of Christ, but also prayers for those who are hurt and ailing. It's a full prayer. The crowning jewel of all prayers within any service is this prayer. And so let us go before the Lord asking all that is on our hearts. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you as, the, as you have sent us the great intercessor, the one who is the spirit that dwells, upon, or dwells in each and every one of our hearts. We thank you for him. We thank you that when our hearts seem silent, he is there interceding for us upon our behalf. And we thank you for the prayers of Christ, who even at the right hand of the Father, even now, intercedes selflessly for his people. We, O oh Lord, lift up many prayers to you this morning. We begin, O oh Lord, by thinking of those who you have put over us in elected office. We think of our Congress this morning. Uh, we think of Mr. McCarthy, Mr. Jeffries, and our own representative, Mrs. Mary Miller. We pray, O oh Lord, that you remind each of these people uh, the calling, the great and high calling of representing us before our federal government. We pray, O oh Lord, that as they represent us, that they would also represent you well according to your scriptures. That the immortal, the unlimited moral law of God that is unchanging, as it is written upon their hearts, would be well represented by their rule over us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you give each of these uh, and our whole Congress wisdom as they govern us instill upon them the gravitas of such an office, of such a work. And when they fail, O oh Lord, as they often do, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would minimize their influence. But, O oh Lord, when they act honorably, when they act honorably according to your word, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would remind them of that great honor and that you would encourage them in their office. We, O oh Lord, are a people that are often discontent with the government over us, but you remind us within Scripture that you've instilled and installed each of these members. We also pray, O oh Lord, for uh, a mission and, and missions that we support. We think of the Call family in Belize as they continue to plant churches in uh, the Presbyterian Church of Belize. We pray, O oh Lord, for great success in this work. We pray that the churches that are planted in Belize, in the Presbyterian Church, but also throughout all of the country, would have a greater conformity to your scripture. We pray that even now that there, the, the church there would continue in pursuing truth and purity, grace and peace. We pray, O oh Lord, that you use the call family to this end. And we pray even now that you would encourage them as they continue in this work. May they, O oh Lord, see the fruit of their labors in their lifetime. May they see a church flourish in the Lord Jesus Christ, even as they continue to labor for it. But we also pray, O oh Lord, for the lost, not only in Belize, but also in our own backyards. We think, O oh Lord, of those who are lost within our own state. We think of those lost in Illinois. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd soften the hearts of all within our state that you would use the gospel now 
a witness to it, to bring those who once did not know you to yourself. We pray, O Lord, that you would use our congregation as a witness to Christ, and in that you would use us to draw many in to the fold, that we as a congregation could be a congregation that can declare your glory as once lost people, as we all know that we once were. We pray, O Lord, for revival within our state. We pray, O Lord, for conversion and faith to be found not only within our community, but throughout our state as well. We pray also, O Lord, for the spiritual life of our own congregation. We pray that we would grow in the spirit of knowledge and truth. We pray, O Lord, that you would instill within each of us a conviction of sin and that that conviction would lead us to Scripture and to Christ. We pray that we would be a people that are described by love and grace and that we, O Lord, would be convicted even as parents to rear our children well in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We pray that we would not slack off on the various graces that you've given to us in our homes. We pray that we would redevote ourselves to the reading of scriptures, that we would sing songs as families together, that we would pray as families. We pray, O oh Lord, for the family, that we not only as a church would grow in Christ, but as, a fa as families grow in Christ. Spur us, O oh Lord, to reading the scriptures within our homes, to singing within our homes, to praying within our homes, to devoting our families to you in our homes. We also pray, O oh Lord, um, for those who are sick among us. There are many sick. We are in a season of sickness, and so, O oh Lord, we lift up all in our congregation who are sick. We, we think particularly of Joanne as she has an infection. We pray that, O oh Lord, that that infection would subside. That as she goes to the doctor later or early this week, that there would be good reports. That the medicine that she's given would be well for her to heal her well. But also, O oh Lord, give her doctor's wisdom. Give Dan patience, mercy, and still with him the graces of the fruit of the Spirit as he cares for his dear wife. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as a congregation we can come around this family. We think also, O oh Lord, of the Lawler family as, as Scott and Chris are absent from us, caring for their grandchild. We pray, O oh Lord, that that battle of COVID would, would heal quickly, that they would have not a, a sad time with their family, but, O oh Lord, a joyous occasion of seeing a little one healed. It is so hard, O oh Lord. When we see the youngest among us ailing. And so we pray, O oh Lord, for the Lawler family. We pray for healing. And we pray for your grace upon each of us. O oh Lord, be with us as we offer all that we are to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. To the book of Philippians. Last week, we saw that Paul maintained a godly attitude in the midst of his imprisonment. Instead of focusing on self and his thanksgiving, on, on how they could better serve him, he focused on the needs of the Philippians. It's somewhat backwards, as we heard last week, of Paul 
looking outside of himself rather than from within. And so this week, Paul gives us an update on his ministry. He gives us an update on how the gospel is advancing in Rome. In our own day, a journalist would probably want to focus the narrative on himself. He would focus on his own arrest, his own imprisonment, his own courtroom appearances. He would want drawings, accurate drawings of himself to be published and to be put out and distributed. He would keep meticulous records of every meal that he has eaten in prison, about how his physical condition declined in prison. He would disclose every feeling he had to those who would listen. In other words, a modern journalist, if put in the situation that Paul is in, would make sure that the world knew about himself. He would again focus on his own conditions. His priority would be to tell the world what he has gone through. But instead, the apostle does something much different. In his ministerial update, it is not the bad food that he eats. It's not the tattered clothes that he wears. He focuses on the good of that imprisonment. He focuses on the advancement of the gospel. That when Christ is proclaimed, the gospel will advance. It will advance despite his location. It will advance despite him being the messenger. It will advance despite even the motives of those in Rome around him as they seek his death. The gospel will advance and nothing will get in the way of it. Stand with me now as we read Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. Here is the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all that rest, uh, and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. We see that there is an unstoppable advancement in Rome. When I think of unstoppable advancements, I think of the great story of the fall of Troy as those Greco-Romans are all outside of the city of those magnificent walls uh, over and over again, troops coming in, filing in to lay siege to that great city. There seems, as you read the story or perhaps watch the awful movie, there seems to be an un. Uh, unstoppable advancement. What is on the outside, if it makes its way in, will destroy 
the city. And that is what happens in that great fable or story. There is an advancement through a Trojan horse that sneaks its way into the city to exploit its one vulnerability, its one Achilles heel, that are the gates themselves being locked shut. Once those floodgates open, none can protect the city. Paul, in some ways, is like a Trojan horse as he enters the Roman city, a city that seems by all accounts and purposes to be a stronghold of pagan religion, unthortable, unstoppable. And yet Paul, even from the depths of prison, brings the gospel forth. And in that proclamation of the gospel, as Christ's armies wait from the outside to come in, conversion comes. It becomes unstoppable. There is no hocus-pocus here, though. The advancement of the gospel happens when Christ is faithfully proclaimed. That is what Paul does as he is in prison, even with his limited resources, even with his limited platform, yet the gospel marches forward. And so, when you proclaim Christ, when you are a witness to Christ, the gospel advances throughout the world. When you are a witness to Christ, gospel advances throughout the world. That advancement comes, believe it or not, despite your location. We see this in verse 12. Where is Paul? He is in the midst of a Roman prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served as an advancement to the gospel. It is quite surprising. You would expect a man who is in bondage, who is enslaved, to be put down, to have his microphone taken away, to be reduced to nothing. Think of the limitation of having cuffs around you at all times. You would expect that imprisonment would have hindered Paul's work. But his first line of update is that instead, quite ironically, maybe even odd, it has really served to advance the gospel itself. It has advanced the gospel. It's ironic that Paul could even think of an idea. Someone who is around the clock watched, around the clock chained, chafing at the wrist. That experience, despite the location, the gospel goes forth. Think of the, fer the fertile ground that Paul is preaching to. It seems as a spiritual desert, but it is not. Verse 13, who is the audience of Paul? Well, he's in prison. So it became known throughout the imperial guard and to all the rest in my imprisonment. So who is Paul preaching to? He's preaching to the guards and the prisoners around him. And both are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both prisoner and guard, the Lord using the shackled to bring the gospel to the unshackled. I think most interesting is that guard themselves coming to faith in Christ. The imperial guard, they weren't your average typical soldier. These were Nero's, these were the emperor's right-hand men. These were the secret service of the emperor himself. They were on the grounds of his palace regularly, watching him, making sure that he survived and survived well. 
he watched, they watched his captives, his prisoners. These were an important people. When the emperor seemed weak, though a god he was to the people, the imperial guard would sometimes even have influence and control over the emperor. These were not a weak people. If these people wanted Paul dead, they could have killed him. In emperor's own house, the imperial guard comes to faith. A, a, a desert that seems fertile. But not only those guards, those fellow prisoners alongside him. Those who would be arrested for all sorts of heinous things. To be expedited to Rome meant there was a great charge against you. This isn't the situation where Jesus finds himself in, even in the Gospels where he is perhaps subdued for a time and then killed in Jerusalem. No, Paul, as a Roman citizen, as a great case, would be exported to Rome itself to be tried. And those around him would have been like him. Maybe citizens, but very serious cases before him. The most unthinkable men would have been shackled along with him, both jailer and prisoner coming to faith in Christ. And this faith that they possess begins to trickle out. It doesn't stay in the prison. It begins to trickle out throughout Rome. And so the location, as you blow it up, sure, micro, the gospel advances in prison, but as the gospel advances in prison, it begins to permeate throughout Rome itself, a place that you would assume is the most inhospitable place for the gospel to be. This is the place where Nero is worshipped as God. This is a place that you would maybe equate to Mecca or Beijing, a place that seems so inhospitable for Christ, why even try? Nero himself was a God worthy of adoration, praise, and worship. To deny Nero this, to worship Christ instead of Nero is a deadly affair. Imagine the tension in Nero's own home. There's no way it would remain secret. As these, his closest confidants, begin to spread the gospel in his own house and throughout his own society. I imagine this would, this, the, these acts here that, that Paul shares with us, these are, this is the groundwork by which Nero, in just a few short laters, years later, would burn Rome itself and blame the Christians. He has to regain control of his capital. He has lost control. He sees it within his own guards, perhaps his own family. He sees it as he goes to the marketplace. He hears Jesus' name more than his own. And so Nero would later burn his own city to try to stop the onslaught of Christ within his town. Paul and the gospel are like an infectious computer virus. As the gospel goes forth, it touches everything and continues to expand greater and greater. And what happens to Rome at this time? Just a few centuries later, you would remember Constantine. I was telling Larry before the service, we should have read the Nicene Creed this morning instead of the Apostles' Creed. And it's because Constantine 
in 312 would come to faith. The great emperor of the Roman Empire would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and legalize the religion in all of his territory. And the first act as a Christian monarch, he would call the Council of Nicaea. And the, the reports of the council are striking because of the onslaught against Christ throughout the years before. Those who came as councilmen to the council of Nicaea would be all sorts of mangled and disfigured. Many without legs, others without arms, without teeth, eyes. It was a ragtag bunch, these early bishops of the church were. He would call them in order to draft the Nicene Creed. But his nephew after him. Julius, if, or Julian, I should say, if you know his name, was an apostate. He was reared in Constantine's home to believe in Christ and would want to go back to the old way. He thought maybe we can regain this country for pagans. And he fails. One of my favorite fabled things that Julian the apostate says on his deathbed, no one knows if it's true, but I like to think it is, partially because I like the quote, as it is fabled, he said, you have conquered, O Galilean. As he tries to regain the country for his own pagan ends, he is unable to thwart Christ because of Paul's work here in Christ. In Philippians, as he reminds us of that great work in Rome. Just a few generations later, you have conquered, O Galilean. The infiltration works because proclaiming Christ brings the gospel to the world. Paul tells us that the gospel advanced despite our location. You might think that you don't have the, the right formula for preaching Christ in our own context. We don't have the right people. We don't have the right method. We don't have the right idea. We don't have the right location. But this passage encourages us, despite the location, we are to proclaim Christ. And when we do, the gospel advances throughout the world. It's an encouragement then to us. It's an encouragement to the church of Philippi as they receive this update. That even if you feel as if the ministry is slugging along slowly, that if you maintain your faithful witness to Christ, that obedience to, to that witness is what Christ uses to advance his work. But I, I think maybe even more broadly, as we think of a passage like this, our location in life ourselves sometimes changes. As we age, we are in some capacity like Paul. We become unable to do what we once were able to do. Even as I age, I learn that when I fall, it takes longer to get up, and I can't imagine how I will age later. As we age, we sometimes lose the capacity to do what we once did in our youth. And we might be discouraged. We might be discouraged that I was once a Sunday school teacher that, that got to teach every week, and now because of various sicknesses or ailments, I'm no longer able to. We might say I have no ability to continue this work to advance the gospel, but maybe we are like Paul in that sense. Remember one lady that I was ministering to who's now gone to be with the Lord, was unable to teach Sunday school anymore, and she had done it for generations. She had taken more RTS classes than anyone I knew at RTS. Her, her husband was the first treasurer of the school, and so she just took classes. She knew more theology than I did, 
And her work within the congregation was felt, even after she was no longer able to serve. Those who she had taught Christ from their very youngest age had grown, and they themselves now were Sunday school teachers. They themselves now were parents leading their children in the Lord. And one thing I heard more than anything in that church, well, how did, what was the most influential thing in, in you coming to faith in Christ? It was Miss Bailey and her care for me. Long after, even her life, her witness to Christ carries on, and her, the advancement of Christ continues in those who she discipled all those Sunday school years ago. Despite our location, whether that be our location here or our location within our own capability, when Christ is proclaimed, his work will advance. But we also see that the gospel in verse 14 advances despite the messenger. Look down at verse 14 with me. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There are a few messengers in this passage as you look down. Well, there's, of course, Jesus, the overarching messenger that brings the good news of his death and salvation. But there's also Paul, the chief messenger in perhaps this epistle. You might think that Paul, how could you say the gospel advances despite the messenger? This is Paul we're talking about. Well, you, you must remember Paul for who he actually is. We revere Paul rightly for his work, but one of my seminary professors reminded me that even the best of men are men at best, and Paul was no exception. I love reading accounts for what Paul looked like and how Paul did ministry. They are, they are quite astonishing. The description of Paul was that he was bald-headed, short, bow-legged, unibrowed, hooked nose, not the most attractive man in the room, not the most easy to get along with either. We're reminded elsewhere in the, the scriptures that he's not the most gifted speaker. He was often criticized for avoiding the use of rhetoric, speaking plainly as it were, but even in, in Peter's recount of Paul's writing, they are hard to understand. Paul's ugly, he's not a gifted speaker nor a gifted writer. He did have humility, but even in that time and age, humility was a negative thing. Paul, and that's what, how others describe Paul. How, how did Paul describe himself? The least of the apostles, the least of saints, the worst of sinners. Yet God chose to use Paul as a pillar for the church of Rome. Paul, Paul was used as a pillar for the church of Philippi and many other churches. The gospel advances despite the messenger, despite Paul, despite me, despite you. But maybe an even greater contrast, because we still like Paul quite a bit, are the prisoners and guards, who this passage says have become confident. That idea of confident is to be convinced, to put confidence in. It's as you sit in each of your chairs, I never test these chairs for sturdiness. I'm confident in the chairs behind me. And one day when those chairs give out and I fall, I'd have placed the wrong confidence in the wrong chair. But none of you tested the sturdiness of the chairs you sat in this morning. 
you had complete confidence that it would hold you. And it has. I've not heard anyone flat out on the floor here. I've, I've seen it before, but not today. We have confidence in what supports us. These prisoners and guards, they have so much confidence in Christ, that kind of confidence, that they have become more bold to speak the word without fear. They become more bold to share Christ. These are not seminary-trained ministers. These aren't even elders. These aren't Sunday school teachers. These are ordinary prisoners and guards. It doesn't get more ordinary than that. As Paul has discipled them, as they have grown confident in the Lord Jesus Christ, their work becomes to witness to Christ. They become an example of Christ and they bear witness. They become patriots for Christ. They come like Mel Gibson in any, any movie he has played as a patriot. You think of Captain Benjamin Mar- Martin. Think of William Wallace. These guards become like William Wallace. They become bold, confident to lead the charge in Rome. And again, as I remind you, think of their position. They have everything to lose. And many did lose their lives. Many did. Of course, the prisoners likely, they were the easy ones, but also the imperial guards themselves. They became fearless. And there was something great to fear in Nero's Rome. They became confident so confident that they would be a witness to Christ throughout Rome, despite what it could cost them. And again, it's despite the messenger. They didn't have the right formula. They didn't know all their doctrine even, but they were confident to share what Paul had shared with them. They became witnesses of Christ. Paul is rallying the troops here. He wants not only the Christians in Rome to rally behind the ministry there, but he also wants the Philippians to be encouraged. Look, what you would expect is for the gospel to diminish in Rome. You might be even debating whether to withhold support. Is the gospel truly advancing where Paul is? Paul's ministry, all intents and purposes, seems done. He's chained. He has no more influence. Should we even support this man? Paul says, yes, because I'm continuing my work. Despite my own situation, despite my lack of ability, I continue. It's an encouragement to each of us that no matter what deficiencies or weaknesses that we might have, that even the weakest among us can join Paul in this proclamation. You might wonder, well, Scott, I'm not a trained preacher. I can't do that gospel call. Well, there is also that great word witness, a witness to Christ. You don't have to be the most eloquent. You don't even have to be one that shares the gospel regularly by verbal account, but you are to be one that witnesses to Christ, that bears witness. Every single one of you are called to bear witness to Christ, through your life, through your actions, through your advice, through what you say and how you talk. I once thought that to be a pastor, I had to be the most evangelistic man in the room, and I was quite often discouraged by my own capabilities. I, I am not your street preacher. I, I did not enjoy going to 
to random stores and heckling random people going to the mall. It's well outside of my comfort zone. And I thought, I can't be a minister because of it. But what my eyes were turned to in Bible college was you're not called to be what your own preconceived understanding of an evangelist is. You're called to be a witness to Christ. Every one of us, no matter how small or large, are a witness to Christ. When Christ is proclaimed, the gospel advances throughout the world. This happens despite the location, despite the messenger, but maybe most interestingly, despite the motive. It's the most interesting part of verse 15 through the end. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. The gospel also advances despite poor motives. You would not think it to be true, but that's what Paul says here. Some in Rome preach Christ out of rivalry. They view Christ as a rival. They view him as perhaps an, as, uh, as an enemy, as an opponent to be beaten. These dissenters sought and wanted the same influence and access as Paul to the church that he had, despite the pure motives. But what's interesting about this passage is that these are people that still preach the true gospel from the wrong motive. They have all of their theological understanding, all their ducks in a row. They know what is right and what is wrong. They know what is truth and what is false teaching. Paul is not encouraging false teaching. He is encouraging the gospel going forth even when the preacher himself has poor motives because the gospel will still advance. People will still come to faith. This idea of envy reminds me of our own political system. Maybe it's your favorite time of the year when, when the political game starts to rev up. You start watching political ads. You see all the mud that is slung back and forth. I mean, Americans seem to love that sort of thing. That's the kind of envy you see of, of wanting that power, wanting that authority. But it's not new. You might think that our current political system, as mudslinging as it is, it might be a new thing. It's not new. I'm reminded of Lyndon Johnson's 1964 ad that if you elect a Goldwater, you will have nuclear holocaust. And, you, of course, the ad ends. Obviously, this is way before my time, but as the ad ends, you see a nice mushroom cloud of death. You elect Goldwater, you, I mean, you think that this is a new idea. We hear the same thing in our own political discourse today. You elect this person, you will have World War III. You will have nuclear holocaust. But it, it goes even before Lyndon Johnson. It goes all the way back to Jefferson and Adams. Jefferson, while on the campaign trail, said this of Adams. He is a man of hideous character with Neither the force or firmness of a man, nor the gentleness and sensibilities of a woman. They were a little refined back in those days. Our mudslinging is a little less highbrow. He's neither man or woman. Don't elect Adams. There's an envy for the position. These are the sorts of envious qualings that are happening in the apostolic movement against Paul. He's a bow-legged bald man. 
Do not follow him. Follow me. He's imprisoned, about to die. He has no influence. Come to me. You see, what drives these people are their own selfish ambitions. That's what you see in verse 17, that these folks have a selfish ambition for their own name and advancement. Yes, they preach the right gospel, but for the wrong reasons. They want themselves to be catapulted to the same level as Paul himself within the church, to have the same influence, to have the same authority, to have the same success. The only way to have that is to get Paul out of the way. When he dies, then someone else will have to take his mantle, and it will be me. Selfish ambition pushes them to try to destroy the apostle himself. When you're thinking through a passage like this, you might think, well, who are these sorts of people today? Who, who, who have the bad motives where they're preaching the right gospel? You might say, well, we could apply this perhaps to like prosperity gospel teachers or something. I would say no, no, it's not talking about false teachers. This is perhaps more analogous to our own current culture where we uplift and make the pastor a celebrity. Think of the celebrity pastor movement within our own evangelical culture. Those men who, who teach the right truths, who preach the true gospel, many of them for good motives, but some, as history often tells us, even in my own short time in the church for poor motives. What do we do about those ministries of Joshua Harris? What do we do with those ministries of men who are defrocked and no longer in the ministry? Well, we're reminded by Paul that despite their motives, if they preach the true gospel, there is some value. And we see the good news in verse 18. Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I praise them even as they seem to seem, seek to undercut me, even as they seek to destroy my ministry for their own motive, I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. One commentator, when thinking about this passage, says that Paul used this situation as a rhetorical uh, a launching pad for the ministry in Philippi. I reminded you probably every week and will continue that there is subtle disagreements, personal disputes within the church. There is rivalry. There is self-ambition within the church. And Paul uses the situation in Rome as a rhetorical uh, argument to teach the Philippians how not to be like the Romans. Yes, yes, the gospel advances, and I rejoice when it's done by pure motive, but how much greater is it when the gospel advances out of good motive, when it comes out of love, as verse 16 tells us, the latter do it out of love. It is much better. Be like those who have good motive. I don't want you to see the passage as an opportunity to have terrible motives within the church. I don't think that's what Paul is pointing to, but he is telling believers that when bad motive comes up and it is revealed to not throw out the whole ministry of the word because of it. We are enamored in our own culture of that as well. When a minister fails, a church fails, we, we see it all throughout the country. Well, how can I trust anything that guy said after they fail? This is the reminder here that even in the midst of the poor, that if Christ is preached, there is something to rejoice in. And each of you are evidence of that here today.
because no one has pure motives. All of us struggle with true love. All of us aspire to verse 16 here of doing all that we do out of love. But we all know the difficulty of such a calling. More often than not, we are like verse 15 and 17. And we say, well, at least we tried in verse 18 and we rejoice in it. But the call for all of us as well here is to look forward to love. To look forward to not pursuing terrible motives within the church, but being like Paul, out of a love for Christ and his, his ministry, being able to be one that says, even though they didn't have the right motives, at least Christ was preached. Pursuing a ministry of love like Paul pursues a ministry of love. Pursuing a ministry of love by setting aside our personal differences, our, our difficulties with one another. Showing the highest priority of the church being that of the proclamation of the word. Despite the difficulties we find there within. When Christ is proclaimed, the gospel advances throughout the world. Full stop. The gospel is an unstoppable force like Paul entering Rome as a Trojan horse. Not even Paul in Rome, the Romans could not stop him. No one, and I mean no one, can stop the advancement of the gospel here on this earth. The gospel is offered to each of us, a reminder of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, who became sin, despite your problems, despite your issues, despite your weaknesses, despite your deficiencies. For those who call upon Christ, he will march in your heart like he marched in Rome and transform it for his own glory. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden his heart. Do not harden your heart, but call upon him. And if you've known Christ your whole life, you're confident. You've seen Christ march through your heart like Paul marched through Rome. Then the reminder here is this. Do not become too prideful to think that it was your own work. Remember that even today the gospel can advance here in our own town, can advance despite you and despite your worst motives. Because Christ is truly great, therefore call upon him. Let us close now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. For it is by him that we can have the confidence that Paul has within this passage. To be a witness of your great name to the ends of the earth. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.